Hey, it is good to be with you all. It is good to be God's people together. Sometimes I just feel like it's worth highlighting and underlying this amazing gift of God's life in us, through us, and surrounding us. Amen? Well, it's good to be God's people. Good to see you here this Memorial Day weekend. Would you do me a favor and turn to 1 Corinthians there in the New Testament? We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here in just a moment. While you're turning there or swiping there or just waiting to see it on the screen because you're a little bit lazy, that's okay. It's Memorial Day. I want to remind you that Easter isn't just a day. Easter is a season, and we're coming to the end of the Easter season. And more than that, we've shifted gears these last couple weeks. Instead of me telling you some stories about the risen Jesus, I'm teaching a little bit from some very powerful work from the Apostle Paul on why the resurrection of Jesus matters. Why the resurrection of Jesus matters. Firstly, in our lives now. That's what we talked about last week. Kind of what we just sang about and prayed about. We looked at Romans chapter 6 and we're reminded that, hey, you're dead to sin. And that means you're alive to God. Because you're united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, you're now free. Free forever, amen. Because death was arrested and we were alive in Jesus. Free from sin's power and penalty. That matters in your life today, y'all. You can live a new life in Jesus. That's why the resurrection of Jesus matters in our lives now. And this evening... We're going to jump way ahead into the future because I'm not even talking about life after death. I'm talking about, y'all follow me, life after life after death and why the resurrection of Jesus matters in the life to come when all that we see now comes to a close so that God's new creation can be ushered in. And we're doing that here in the epic conclusion of an epic chapter describing an epic life after life after death. Namely, the resurrection of the body. And this is why the resurrection of Jesus matters in our life to come. Now, because tonight is kind of teachy, like last week, I want to pause at the end of my talk for some questions, reflections, responses, disagreements, insults, whatever you got, we're all God's people together, just don't throw anything, and let's hear a little bit about what you're thinking, processing, and writing down. This chapter is the most extended treatment on the resurrection of those who are in Christ Jesus, and there's 58 verses, and there's a lot that I started with at the beginning of the week, and by this moment, I whittled it down to eight verses. So even if you're tracking along and reading this long statement that Paul's making, and we're just dropping in on the conclusion, if you got some questions or comments on the longer piece of 1 Corinthians 15, I think we can do that because it's worth talking about once in a while. Y'all with me? You good? Let's read the epic conclusion of an epic chapter and talk about why the resurrection of Jesus matters in our lives to come. You with me? Let's do it. 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. This is a transitional sentence. Paul's just used some metaphors to describe our actual bodies being remade for God's new world recreated. So he's tying off these metaphors and transitioning to this mystery. Look with me in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood, this body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable, which is what he was just talking about, inherit the imperishable, which is God's new creation. Verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, which is a euphemism for dying, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. All of us, those who are dead and those who are standing around when Jesus comes back. Continuing on in verse 53. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. He's talking about our bodies. And the mortal with immortality. And then when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then that saying that was written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Let's pause there real quick because I don't think I'll address that if I don't do it now. If you're hearing that at a funeral, you want to kind of say, whoa, Paul, that's a rabbit trail. But for Paul's theology, what he's talking about is, y'all, the wages of sin, the end game of sin, the way of rebellion is going against the grain of God in his life, so the end game of sin is what? Death. So if death is like a sting... The sting is sin, and that poison will get us eventually and kill us. And then the law is something that reveals sin, because if you've got a standard that says, here's God's ideal, to not live up to it means the alternative, which is rebellion and sin. So for Paul, it's not just death that needs to be done away with. It's sin that leads to death. And to move beyond the law, which reveals sin. Are you with me? For Paul, these are all three things that aren't going to make it through the other side. He's going to move us beyond law because we'll be like Jesus eventually. He's going to move us beyond sin because we'll see Jesus for who he is and we'll be like him. And then we don't need the law anymore, do we? So when we are putting on this imperishable and this immortality. Man, there's no more need for death that's swallowed up or the thing that causes death, sin, or the thing that reveals sin, which is the law. You with me? Let's resume in verse 57. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory over these things through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you and always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of the end. The way the New Testament talks about the end is when this world as we know it comes down to its end, God's new world will be remade and recreated. But what I mean by this statement, Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of the end, is that the resurrection of Jesus on that first Easter Sunday was a new creation event that happened smack dab in the middle of the old creation. And everybody is still reeling from the mysterious powerful, unique event of the resurrection of Jesus. It's like the resurrection of Jesus was God's down payment on this world before he will one day pay it in full and move his couch and his velvet Elvis and his favorite end table and he's going to move into this earth. The end game at the end of the age is that heaven and earth become one and remade But the resurrection of Jesus was the down payment, the first marker of what that final end will look like. Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of the end. And the end is when death will die, his people will be transformed, which is what we just read, and the world will be renewed. That's why the resurrection of Jesus matters in our life to come. It is the foretaste, the down payment, the first fruits of what will be smack dab in what is. Are you with me? Let's back up and let's talk about a couple things before we get into these remarkable claims that we're trying to unpack from what we just read in this epic chapter. You see, that is Christian hope. That our bodies and our world won't be wasted, but it will be raised and renewed but it's been lost or muddled in many circles. And let me illustrate that for a few moments. If we were to walk out into the street, looking both ways so we don't get hit by cars, and we find the first person on the street corner, and we say, hey, let me ask you something. What are Christians waiting for after death? What would they say? Garden variety, man on the street. Go to heaven, okay? Let's find nine more so we've got ten people. What are Christians waiting for after death? What are you going to hear? Go to heaven. I would guess probably nine or maybe ten would say this is the end game. This is it. This is what it's about. You with me? Is that agreeable to say? Okay. Let's move on. I actually did this with a Christian youth group several years ago. And I said, hey, what are Christians waiting for when they die? And they say, going to heaven. I said, awesome. Let me ask you a follow-up question. What do you think then is like the main point, the main thing, the whole deal about this life that we call Christian? What is the main focus of the Christian life? And invariably, all of them said, dude, it's to go to heaven when you die. I said, awesome, 
Let's do an experiment. I'm going to give you five minutes, break up into groups. You've got the whole Bible. Matter of fact, just do the New Testament because it's shorter. And you've got five minutes to find me all the verses that say in some way going to heaven when you die. Okay? If that's the main thing, if that's the main hope, you're going to find a lot, you would think, right? Well, that's not the case. And you see these poor young people squirming, flipping through their Bible, wondering, well, shoot, if that's the main thing, why isn't it getting more airtime? Now, let's pause here and talk about how heaven is God's space and heaven is important. But there is virtually no explicit references that say, when you die, you go to heaven and that's that. Especially when you die, you go to heaven, you get some angel wings, and it looks like the cartoons that we see in our culture. You go sit on a cloud, you go to an awesome country club in the sky, or it looks like a far side cartoon. But somehow this idea has permeated not just our culture out there, it's permeated a lot of our Christian culture. I heard this phrase, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Let me talk to you about Christian hope. Heaven is God's place, and heaven is little by little invading earth. Where God gets done what God wants done, it's what Jesus taught us to pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. Now, let me back up. I believe, hear me, that if I were to die right now, I would be present with the Lord. One of the verses those youth group kids could have found was, to be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. Now this makes sense when Jesus is running around saying, I give you eternal life. Wouldn't it follow that if you're alive and born again, and you're receiving the Spirit of God within you, that when you die, you wouldn't just cease to exist or be kaput? No, it follows that you would probably continue to be alive. Are you with me? So there is this sense of rest and paradise when Jesus talks to the thief on the cross. You tracking with me? Some of y'all thinking about this? But these are a few glimpses of an otherwise smaller scale hope within the broader scale of Christian hope being less about going to heaven when you die, and listen, more about heaven coming here on earth so that we would be raised and live. Christian hope is not just dying and going to heaven, but rising when Jesus comes to earth. Just pound for pound, this is what the early Christians spoke more and more emphatically about. And this kind of resurrection is what I mean when I say life after, life after death. You following me? Now, when God raises the dead and renews the world in the end, that's the end game in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. However, it's been lost and buried and supplanted instead for this. It's just about going to heaven when you die, which is not wrong It's just not the whole picture. Have I made my case? Maybe, but I'm still going to tell you one more story. I was leading a young adult Bible study for 20-somethings a few years back, 
And we were talking about Christian hope and the resurrection. Because for me, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. So much so that I got a dang tattoo about it. Because I needed to remind myself of the powerful hope that we have to stare death in the face. And because Jesus was raised, he ain't even going to waste our bodies. We're going to be raised. And it got me amped up. And I got a tattoo. And I'm leading a Bible study. And I'm reading this passage that I just read to you. And I kid you not, a wonderful friend of mine who is an engineer and educated and grew up in church and had read his Bible, legit stopped me mid-sentence from this passage I just read to you and said, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but it ain't mine. Which is always fun for a young 20-something trying to lead a Bible study to just stop them dead in their tracks. But the good news this time is it wasn't something crazy I was saying. I was legit just reading what Paul said. And the problem was he had not heard his whole existence in a conservative evangelical church of the hope of the resurrection of the body. And it began to dawn on me, well, duh, when you grow up singing, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. It makes little sense when you see that heaven actually flies here. And then I heard a modern worship song from a guy that I loved. His name is Robbie C. He's a Texan. He has a song on one of his albums that say, when the devil tries to come to me, I'm going to tell him to his face, you can have my body, but you cannot have my soul. It begs the question, have we focused in on some small piece of it to the exclusion of the broader and wider Christian hope that is less about dying and going to heaven, but more about rising when Jesus comes to earth and he ain't even going to waste your body or this world. So now, we got to give my friend some credit because he's not the only person that had this objection. I don't know what you're talking about, but that don't sound right to me. Paul writes this epic chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 because this Corinthian church that had no shortage of problems had a problem with the fact that, ugh, he's going to raise our bodies? Dude, that's gross. He talks at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 about here's the gospel. Jesus was crucified, buried, but then raised. Raised in a body that we saw and he saw and hundreds of people saw, dudes. But you can have this disconnect because think back, if you can, to a world without an emergency room, without multivitamins, without a Walmart supercenter, or a CVS. Imagine a world in which most of the population lived on a dollar a day and food was scarce and there's a lot of hungry mouths. Imagine a mortality rate for children that was about 50% that they would see 11 years old. Then, when a story we told a couple weeks ago, when somebody dies, you better get on it because there's no embalming, there's no nice and tidy week long of the funeral and the grieving process. It is decomposing and it's time to get it up and out. No wonder you begin to think this hope seems weird. I might buy that Jesus was raised in a body, but no way is he going to use my stinky, smelly skeleton up at Restland. Now, here's the trick. There is this philosophy sprinkling around in first century Corinth and the like 
that actually is still resonating down today to our friends that we encounter on the street, thinking we just go in a soul to heaven or hell and that's that. The philosophy said, because your stinky bodies are struggling, body bad, soul and spirit good. I am spiritual, but I can't wait to be free from this cage If you've been around Bible studies or Sunday schools, you've probably heard this term Gnosticism. Starts with a G. And it has still influenced and affected the church about 500 years later. Because you had some Greek guys convert to the faith and they began to say, well, let's talk more about the soul, right? Let's talk more about the soul because it's good and spiritual. And we can even read some stuff that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about a life-giving spirit and a spiritual body. But then you begin to devolve into a hope that's less robust than the hope of a Jesus who's raised from the dead in his body, and he will also raise us in his body. So I can't blame my friend at the Bible study any more than I can play, blame the Corinthians with these two questions. Well, Jesus might have been raised in his body, but dude, no, what? Gross. And then the second one is, okay, fine. If he is, what kind of body? And that's what is dominating a lot of the conversation of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, that's my lead up to the second half of this talk that is about the three remarkable statements that Paul makes to conclude his case that no, 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 Christian hope is so much bigger, he's going to raise us and renew the world. Here's the three statements he made that we just read. We're going to spend the last couple moments with, and I want to hear some questions and response and feedback. The first is that we will all be transformed I mean, we read that straight up. And what he means by this, we're going to talk about in just a moment. The second thing is, when that happens, death will be swallowed up. I said it this way, death will die. And isn't this a hope that we can really sink our teeth into? Because when Paul says, where, O death, is your sting, I want to scream at him and say, right here, dude, it stinks. But this is why we need a robust hope. That even death will die. Third remarkable statement he makes is this encouragement at the end. Because we believe this, here's the third one. Live like there is a tomorrow. That's what Paul concludes this epic chapter with. So let's circle back around and let me tell you a mystery. We will be transformed. We will be transformed. Let's work backwards here. If the end of Revelation is a new heaven and a new earth, it follows that we might need some new bodies in order to live in it. And so what happens is this. When Jesus returns, now notice I'm not saying when there is a rapture. We talked about this in our First Thessalonians series. The rapture is a doctrine that was um, brought about about 150 years ago. But that leaves about 1,800 Christian years that says Jesus is going to come back once, and that's going to be at the end of the age, and he's going to raise up everybody. Everybody's going to be judged. The dead are going to be dead that have rejected and gone against the grain of God's love. Satan and evil and all the dark forces in this world are going to be done away with. And then heaven and earth will be renewed, remade, one, done, that's that. But what happened 150 years ago is this doctrine from an iffy and bad translation of a passage in 1 
Thessalonians that says, no, actually, Jesus is going to come, but not really come. He's just going to kind of stay up in the clouds, and then we're going to be like Kirk Cameron's left behind. Which is a misunderstanding of this idea of what Paul talks about elsewhere that is so obvious to the New Testament church. Where when a king returns, people run out to meet him and usher him home because it's party time. Let me show you your new digs. Let's do this now. What happened instead is we're going to all be buck naked and leave our clothes there. Get sucked up into heaven and then a thousand years later we're going to come back. That's a one strain of thought and theology, but let me tell you, that is not the dominant strain for almost 2,000 years of Christian thinking and teaching and preaching and reflection. Jesus will return one time, and those who are dead are going to be reunited, soul and body, and raised up. Sounds crazy, but this is our hope. Those who are standing there and seeing Jesus as he returns are going to be transformed. This is what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. It sounds crazy, but it is our hope. Because he will not waste one thing of this good life that he's given us, but new creation will supplant old creation, and we will all be changed just like Jesus. Don't believe me? Here's Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like what? His glorious body. The linchpin of Paul's argument is, y'all, we believe Jesus is alive and in some kind of bodily existence and we are in him, we're united with him, we're like him, duh, You're going to be raised up, body and soul, and be like him when he comes. You with me? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, we are now children of God. So we're citizens and children. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will all be transformed when Jesus shows up. In our text, we read that when we put on the imperishable that won't die again, when we put on immortality because that's not a given, you don't just wake up and come out the womb immortally because 1 Timothy, he says, look, God alone is immortal. Y'all, I heard from a wonderful, godly, wonderful pastor growing up. Everybody is eternal, and you're going to go one place or another. And I just was scratching my head going, what about this? God alone is immortal in 1 Timothy. And I would say, what about eternal life being a gift? What about the Old Testament that knows very little of just the fact that we can be eternal? Well, perhaps it's a gift given to us So we've got to put on immortality and put on imperishability, which means we're death-proof, which is the second remarkable claim. When that happens, death will die. And then he quotes Isaiah 25. He quotes Hosea 13 as an ultimate death. I taunt you, boy, you ain't got nothing on me except that, whoops, Paul, 
dies. How can he say such a wild thing? Let me give you some pastoral advice. Slap me across my face when I come to that hospital room next to that person that we had just prayed with that had just expired, and I say, ha, ah, well, that was tough, but hey, death, where's your victory and where's your sting? Whoa, read the room. I think there's a foundation of hope that's able to look death squarely in the eye and say, even when it hurts, even though it hurts, I am choosing to stubbornly believe that death will die, it doesn't get the final word, and even if I gotta wait, I'm gonna trust and stand firm that love and Jesus and the Spirit of God is stronger than death. And Paul is able to say this remarkable claim because he knows that God promised this to be so, and even if we gotta wait, he will keep his promise. And he will not waste our bodies. And he will not waste the work that we've done. Which is the third statement that he makes. He says, stand firm. Don't be moved from this foundation. And give yourselves fully to gospel work. Because God won't waste that either. He said, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Sometimes it looks like giving children school uniforms so that they can have the dignity to take clean pants and a shirt to their class the first week of school. Sometimes it looks like giving some of our friends and neighbors what they called the bathroom paper because they hadn't had it for a month. Sometimes it looks like praying for their injuries and their feet and their backs and their surgery so that they might come back a month later and say, I believe that God healed me when we prayed together, people of the neighborhood church. Sometimes it looks like sharing a meal with dignity, not from this top-down, I'm better than, holier than, but I'm eating with you, alongside you, because there is a love that is worth building bridges instead of building walls. Sometimes it looks like an encouraging text or word that is a little breath of heaven when our people are going through hell. Sometimes it is a reminder that even in the valley of the shadow, God is leading us on and back again to green pastures, even if we can't see it yet. The work that you do as God's people together matters, even if there's 80 people of us here. Even if there's 27 families every third Saturday. Even if it's just you and that person in that conversation, that one time that not one of us knows about, your work matters because God sees it and he won't waste it. Because he is not in the business of wasting this world, our bodies, or anything. And it's not just that we rest with him in his presence when we die. It's that our work will echo into eternity when he raises us up again and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
live not like there's no tomorrow. Live like there is a tomorrow. And even if you won't see the fruit, would you still labor? Because what God can do can be immeasurably more than anything you could ask or imagine or even ever see. So what would you give? How would you serve? Who would you love? What step would you take right here, right now, this week, if you knew that God would use it and that he won't waste it? And even if you're not raised for another four millennia, would you walk in the confident hope of the one making all things new, that he sees you, he loves you, He's empowering you and calling you into new creation life that begins here and now and will echo forever. Let's pause. I want to hear some questions, some reflections, some things that are resonating, some things that need clarifying. And then I want to close maybe with a brief story and certainly with some quotes depending on our time. What are you hearing? What are you thinking? What am I not talking about or am not clarifying Yep. Mm -hmm. That's total NT right. No, the death is straight up death. So my view is this, and he uses this euphemism sleep, and some people that love Jesus and read the Bible, they say, no, actually there's this, you die, and then you're basically in a coma, but it feels to you like a minute, because once you die, you open your eyes and you're already fast forwarded to the end of the age, the end of time. So I'm talking about physical death. And when I say life after, life after death, which is totally NT right, what I mean is this. If I were to die right now, may it not be Lord Jesus. Just let me finish this first, please. If I were to die right now, I believe that I would open my eyes and be present, awake with the Lord. I can't tell you all that that means or looks like, but you lovely folks would move my body and bury it. Now, fast forward, I'm living it up with Jesus, with him, in him, but millennia down the road, perhaps, or next week, Jesus comes, I'll be kicking it with him, he'll raise up my body, and that will be the second stage of life after, life after death. And this is so clearly at least a dozen places in the New Testament. I was going to read more. I have more. We can give you more later. So there's stage one, I believe, in the presence of the Lord right there immediately. And then I would come back with your grandma, your mom, your dad, your friend, your brother, your cousin, and whoever else. And we would all be in the triumphal procession down with Jesus. And he's going to raise us up, unite us body and soul, and we'll walk into new creation. Life after the first life after death. We don't talk about this a lot, so this is why I'm ha happy to talk about it. Yeah, Miguel? How should we treat our bodies after, after we die? This is the real trick. And I used to get real messed up about this. So you talking about like cremation and organ donors and this thing. It would be a real shame if Jesus comes back and he got to suck a kidney up out of somebody in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, here's the trick. 
I used to be kind of really dogmatic about that because I used to be dogmatic about a lot of stuff. And I would tell Amy, here's my funeral. I plan my funeral, sing this song and do this. And don't, don't, don't. I still do that. I still do that. But here's the trick. What's the difference between a person that was cremated yesterday and the person who died 8,000 years ago? Probably, tangibly, a whole lot of nothing. They're both totally decomposed. It's some mystery. I trust Jesus to work it out. And I don't think that cremating cremating or a traditional burial or even an eco-burial and some cheesecloth or who knows what is going to really preclude him from doing these amazing, mysterious things we've been talking about. Somehow, at the last trumpet, it's going to make sense. And he's going to do what he's going to do. And here's the last thing I'll say, say on that, and then we can have another one or two. Um, uh, an illustration, an analogy that N.T. Wright also uses, and you've heard in this church from my predecessor and others, um, when we're in the womb of birth, um, you can no more tell the baby and the fetus, like, have you heard of Chipotle? It's going to be wonderful. It's a burrito, and it's this. And if that child could perceive this language they have no idea what a burrito is or the greatness of their cilantro lime rice. They have no idea what a tree is or the sun is. They have whispers and they hear voices, but they can't fully experience it until they're born into this world. I think that when we read Revelation, especially the end of what John is describing as the new creation coming, I think what he's trying to say is, I can't explain it because I'm not born into it yet. You're just going to have to trust that it's just even better than carnitas in this kind of thing. Maybe one or two more. Yeah, Jason. Yeah. Yeah, so the beggar Lazarus and the rich man is a parable that Jesus tells about the beggar that's named Lazarus uh, goes to Abraham's bosom and that is like a traditional Jewish um, rabbinic uh, cultural approximation of like the Sabbath rest after death. And then the rich man uh, who lives in the house where Lazarus was begging, who's also not even named who is a big deal in life, all of a sudden is experiencing some kind of conscious torment um, in his post-mortem existence. I think that's a weird thing because it's a parable that Jesus is telling within the, within the cultural mores of that time, kind of their expectation, with some images that are very familiar to them. Like if I told a story today about like the Avengers, it would make a lot of sense in 2019 and I think that it's less dogmatic than the whole weight of Scripture when it comes to this is what it's going to be like. I think the point that he's making is this great reversal of fortunes and that you think you're high on the hog, that can all shift after death. So I think that's the biggest focus of that teaching. And then the second bit is it still gives way to like there's some consciousness immediately after death. So whether or not that's all cultural or all this, there is some semblance of like people that have gone against the grain of God are not as well off, but then people that 
were on God's side and with him and in him and leaning into him, they experienced some conscious bliss. So I think that it's still squarely within that. There's life after death. Um, it's just not the final state. And it's a parable too, so I'm trying to leave a little bit of breathing room too because it's different, which is what you would say too probably. Jason and I disagree on a few little things, but we, di- we disagree without disengaging in this church. He's wrong and I'm right. And that's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but like, oh. Toby. So there's always mystery mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have, I mean, first of all, yeah, and first of all, we, we don't know, but here's what's crazy. So Jesus, in his glorified resurrection body, eats with his disciples. So had I not shifted gears the last two weeks to do some teachy stuff, we would preach what we do a lot at Easter when he shows up and has a fish breakfast with Peter and there's, they can recognize him. So he's different, but he's also recognizable. So there's some parallel with our bodies here. In the Old Testament, at the end of Isaiah, which configures the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation in Isaiah 60 and toward the end of it, There's parallelisms about the lion laying with the lamb. Children can walk over, put their hand over the snake's um, den and not fear. And There's still some bleed over into the world that we now recognize. Um, So I think that there's enough glimpses or whispers that we can still kind of perceive and understand some touch point of like, oh yeah, this but immeasurably better. Like this steak that is so wonderfully tasting here, like is t- can't even hold a candle to this. Our bodily existence and experience, our work, our life, our love, completely swept up in the divine love of Father, Son, and Spirit. He says when death is swallowed up, earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, that God will be all in all. If you have just a little bit of God's love here, try full force fire hose, light and love and life. It's unimaginable. I think there's some parallelism, but can be there. And to more directly to your question, it's really fascinating at the end of Revelation when he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Some people speculate that there is some awareness of the ways in which I failed to live up to this, but he meets us in grace and love. There's some awareness that some of those we love, I believe, will cease to exist because they've gone against the grain of God being all in all and they just can't physically take it and they cease to exist. Some people will call that hell. I I believe that um, what John 3.16 says, that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish. I believe they perish and then we get eternal life. That's my view. And I think that's a thoroughly biblical view. I literally have 120 verses that I think bear that out. But the trick is um, when he's wiping away every tear from the eye, some people speculate that he's like saying, hey, I know I'm hurting with you. Um, And there's a time for mourning. There's a time for awareness. But he's wiping this tear away. And we're living in this new eternal reality of the new heavens and the new earth with him. But there's a lot of mystery still. Anybody who says it's going to be X, Y, and Z, and my eight-year-old went to heaven, and here's what it looks like, I think gives it, should give us some pause.
Maybe one or two more. Good. Everyone thoroughly confused and crazy? We want to talk more about hell and that thing. I can send you an hour-long lecture that is actually super digestible. That is like, it will rock your socks. From the late, great Edward Fudge. His name is Edward Fudge. He was a Houstonian. And it would speak to some of what I just, the grenade I just launched and left. Okay? All right. I want to, yeah, Kelly? Yep, totally. I do know what you mean, and that was so perfect because the, the next quote, I'm going to skip the story and go to the quote because he directly addresses that. And I think I'll say this before we get to that quote and wind down, is this. I think the only way to make sense of the problem of evil, death, and suffering in the world is not that God caused it all because he's so powerful he has to meticulously put all of this together. I think instead we look to the crucified Christ, that God himself enters in to a wild and violent and rebellious world to in solidarity with humanity, be killed by them. And it begs the question, in what other religion does God become one of us in humility and solidarity with us in order to say, I know your pain, I know death, I've tasted death, but I've come out on the other end of death and I'm beckoning back to you so that you can hold my hand through it And if you would just hold on, you would see that I make it up to you and the whole world in the end. When I think about the tragedy and the pain of children and sickness and leukemia and breast cancer and lung transplants and all this brokenness, God meets us in it, not rising above it and say, it's all for my glory, I made it so. He says, it's all for my glory because I'm going to bend it all to its rightful conclusion. I will swallow up this death, if not now, then. And I will heal you, if not now, then. And the trick is how that works itself out on the ground level is what we say all the time in this church. We pray believing that God can. We're asking that God will. And if and when he doesn't, can we stubbornly, hopefully encourage each other to trust that he loves us no matter what. Praying, believing God can. Asking, asking, asking that God will. And trusting that God loves us no matter what happens. I feel like that's the implication here. And it's not a blind optimism that says, it's okay, I love that my leg is amputated. No, it's not a wishful thinking or a Pollyanna game. It's saying, this is not the end. N.T. Wright says it best. Hope for the Christian is not wishful thinking or mere blind optimism. It is a mode of knowing, a mode within which new things are possible Options are not shut down, and new creation can happen. How that works itself out is this. 
I have this deep knowing in my bones that says this is a little crazy. But when I leave the cemetery, I say, you know what? I just know that that couldn't be it. I just know that that four-year-old, God, you're going to make it up to her. I just know that that 90-year-old that was suffering for the last 25 years, that's not the end of her story. I just know that I know that I know because I have encountered the risen Christ who said, I am the resurrection and the life, even in those places of death. Finally, N.T. Wright says this in his wonderful book called Surprised by Hope. Jesus' resurrection then is the beginning of God's new project Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. You ain't got to wait for eternal life. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain, because eternal life is not just for then, it's for now. And each time you go out to speak life, to love well, to forgive, to give, and serve, is colonizing more and more heaven right here on earth. And that's what we're here for. Amen? Amen. If you'll please stand to receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and protect you, and may you live like the blessed and protected child of God that you are. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you, and may you smile and be gracious to your neighbors. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace, and may you spread favor and peace to this world. Go in peace.